You are listening to episode 24 of the Drunk Sex Podcast. Welcome to Drunk Sex. Whatever you're into, we've got you covered. So crack open your favorite beverage and join your host, Jen Wardkey, for the Drunk Sex Podcast. Hi. Hello there. I'm so thrilled to welcome uh, Dr. Anne Ridley onto the podcast, also known as the Modern Aphrodite. You are a clinical sexologist and psychotherapist, and you run a fantastic online and brick and mortar store for sexuality products, correct? That is correct. I do all of those things. (laughs) Yeah. Many hats. Very many hats. And And that's just my professional life. (laughs) <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> so many balls in the air. And you and I haven't spoken in ages. Yeah. So how long have you uh, had the store up and running? Let's see. So, yeah, since we've spoken, really. Um, let's see. So about seven years ago, I got my doctorate in human sexuality. I had been a therapist um, since 2002 with a master's degree. And then... About three years ago, my clients wanted me to start carrying product. So that's really how the store was birthed. And the store, the brick and mortar store has nothing phallic in it. And yeah, it's it's more of a sexual wellness, pretty boutique, Mm. I would say. Yeah. And it's worked out beautifully. It's really worked out well. For people who are listening who don't know, uh, the store is in Santa Fe, correct? Yes, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then I have an online store as well that's obviously open anywhere to anyone. So I'm always curious. Like, it's popped into my head every now and then. Like, it would be great to run a store, uh, like a wellness store, like, as you said, not so phallic penis, blah, blah. Right. But to have, an, like, an educational component as well. Yes, and a lot of people come into the store to see me, you know, they yeah. want, they want to ask questions. They want, um, more like comfort level and saying which toys or aids would work for them as well as any sort of challenges that they're having. So often clients will also buy from me, you know, people that I see on an hourly basis professionally, um, and confidentially, but then also just customers who come in that just have a lot of questions like all of us do about Mm. our sex life. Right. And I think that it's a really beautiful service. I'm grateful that I can provide that. And I get to talk to a lot of interesting people who are experimenting and trying a lot of different things. Yeah. I think it's really important to, for people to have a place where they can go ask questions. And I'm sure in your private life, as in mine, I've become that de facto person for a lot of people because they know I'm not going to judge and they feel comfortable asking me really personal stuff. And I think it's too bad that we don't have more of that in our society where people can go and get good information. I I think we do a horrible job of educating people on sexuality and so to create a space where people can ask questions and find out what they need to know, I think is such a wonderful element of our job. Absolutely. And I think what a lot of people end up doing is asking their physician. Mm. And often physicians are obviously amazing at what they do, 
and also not really well versed or don't have the time to spend with people sort of in addition to what's happening physically. Like I work with a urologist and and he refers back and forth to me as I do to him around issues of sexual dysfunction. I don't like that term. I don't usually use people who come to me, but as a clinical term in, in a physician's office, that's what they will use. So they will go through and make sure it's not a medical reason And then they'll usually prescribe Viagra or whatever, and then refer to me. Yeah. So that we can work on the emotional components. Yeah. I think it's really interesting what you said there, that word dysfunction. I think we have a very limited view of what comprises or what we think comprises quote unquote normal sexuality, which isn't a thing. Normal sexuality doesn't exist. It's only what... And it, what you may think is normal at one point in your life will not seem normal at a different point in your life. Like it's always yeah. changing. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, whenever I think of a sex, a sex shop or a, you know, a shop with intimacy aids and that kind of stuff, I wonder how challenging is it for you to uh, select the inventory? You know, it's not that hard. <laughs> no, What's that? I said, it's really not that hard. I just got back from the adult novelty trade show in LA, um, which is for buyers and it happens twice a year. And it's really the top brands in, in our industry that are there and they are showcasing their products and they are there to answer questions and show us how everything works. And, and so my shop is only high grade medical silicone. I don't sell anything that smells that when it comes out of the package, if it smells, you probably shouldn't put it in your body. Yep. And I only sell like water-based all natural ish um, with a little bit of variation lubes and, and oils and that kind of thing. So for me that already limits, you know, to sort of a narrow focus of the things that I would actually carry in the shop. People really appreciate that. I also live in Santa Fe, which is a very natural place um, where people are, you know, very farm to table and organic and want nothing that has chemicals in it. So part of it is not just my belief, but also what the clientele wants. And then there is a real sexual wellness component. Do these things fit your body, you know, and what is promoted is not just pleasure, but comfort. I think people should be aware that sometimes finding, I think a sex toy or aid or whatever can be like finding a therapist and that it might not necessarily be the right fit for you. So you might like, they're not going to fit. Everybody's body is different and the devices, depending on what it is, can be very rigid or some of them have more flexibility. So you might have to try a few toys to find one before you find one that really works and fits in the way that you exactly. And I, as well as I'm sure you do try a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, companies want me to review. They want to get my business obviously. So they, I'm sent free items a lot. And I often tell customers because most of the toys are a hundred dollars, you know, some of them are closer to two they have a lot of reservations about spending that much on something that they're not sure is going to be right for them. And, you know, the clitoris 
between the clitoris to the opening, to the vaginal opening, to the G spot, the, the difference is going to be different for different women, mm-hmm. as is erect penis size, size of testicles. These are all going to be, you know, length of shaft. All of these things are going to vary from individual to individual. And then the joy of when someone tells me that they found something that is so wonderful for them and they are having so much increase in pleasure, that is such a beautiful gift. And, and with it being just Valentine's day, that's happened a lot to me this week (laughs) because a lot of people got new toys and new playthings for Valentine's day. And I've been receiving messages of just, singing the praise of a lot of the items that I carry. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So is there anything up and coming that you're really excited about or anything new that you're, you know, has worked well for you or any bestsellers? I have to say that this year, um, the trend in adult novelty is really a lot of clitoral vacuums and clitoral stimulators. And I think that, the way that the market has changed to really focus back on the clitoris, shocking, (laughs) right? I mean, we've always had focus on the clitoris, but the sucking vacuum version of a lot of these toys has just really made the forefront and people are starting to take it seriously and, and beginning to understand that we have nerve endings that, that, are in the clitoris that run up into the G spot area. So that even with just external stimulation around the clitoris, you can have an internal orgasm. The clitoris. I remember the first time I saw that MRI picture of the clitoris. Yes. Yes. I went, Holy shit. Mm -hmm. How has nobody told me this? Right. And then it also immediately made sense in the context of some of my sexual experiences. I was like, Oh, that's why that feels good. And that's why I like that and not that because it's all inside and the external portion of the clitoris is actually quite small, but yes. inside it's huge. And it's right. like, it just, yeah, it blew my mind. And I went, this totally makes sense. We need to tell everybody about this. We need to tell everyone. And people are yeah. quite shocked really when I explain to them that you can have just external play and have an internal orgasm because usually that doesn't come just from oral sex and that kind of thing. The stimulation may not be as intense. Now, for some people, they would. But for most people, they need clitoral stimulation during penetration for a vaginal orgasm. Yeah. So having these toys, even to use with a partner, creates more of that intense stimulation that is prime for orgasm. Yeah, and I think... If it's a heterosexual couple we're talking about here, mm-hmm. and if she has an orgasm while he's inside her, like that's great for him too. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not just because most of us get off on our partners receiving pleasure, experiencing pleasure, but also because of the tightening effect and the bonding, right? I mean, there's just so for many her. reasons why that's amazing. And it's challenging. I mean, you know, what is it? I think 80% of women or something like that don't don't orgasm from uh, penetration alone. You know, I, I wonder if dills or something else. Yeah. I wonder if, I don't know, it's been swirling around in the back of my mind 
And I think I might experiment on myself. Can I retrain my body to orgasm through penetration? Interesting, right? I mean, I wonder if you can. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. me, I really do. I'm a huge proponent of masturbation. And I, I think it's, I think everybody should masturbate more, even if you are in a relationship, because that is really a place where you can play with your sexuality and experiment with pleasure and what feels good in your body in a completely judgment-free zone. Cause it's just you in the room. Absolutely. I second all of that. And I'm and really in the mindset of sexual autonomy at the moment yes. of being in charge of our own pleasure and not waiting to be activated by another person. Yes. To yes. be in our pleasure so that yes. it takes pressure off too. Right. And, and, as we're masturbating frequently, hopefully that we have a relationship with our pleasure, a relationship with ourself, that we are that much closer, right, to our orgasmic states because yeah. we're keeping it alive and fresh. It's yes. not that far under the surface. So it's also something that I really encourage. And the idea of retraining, I mean, I know from trying various toys that you can teach or most people I will say could teach themselves to orgasm with different toys if they really tried because this mindset of I only come one way with this toy or this person or this stimulation is is very limiting hundred percent in that right there can be other anxieties sexual performance, challenges and those kinds of things that can arise from having a narrow window of pleasure. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, I've been using the clitoral vibrators almost exclusively for the past, I'd say six months in an effort to retrain myself as well. So that when I have penetrative sex, that it feels really unique, really different you know, very special that I'm limiting that to a particular person or something like that. So you are not penetrating yourself. You're just using. I am not. And I always have. I mean, since I was, I don't know. I'm, I'm almost the exact opposite. I had no interest in penetrating myself and I only penetrated myself for the first time, like year and a half, two years ago, maybe. Really? Wow. Yes. And prior to that, and so what this is what I'm thinking I can retrain myself because I think what I have done, because nobody ever teaches us about masturbation and good masturbation habits. So I think what I have done over the years is I trained myself inadvertently to orgasm from external clitoral stimulation. And so for me, this retraining that I'm thinking I might want to play with is what if I only penetrate myself during masturbation or during masturbation uh-huh. and see if I can stimulate my clitoris from the inside and have an internal, yes. an orgasm from internal stimulation. So then like some sort of recommendation that I would use in just, if you were like bringing that to me and I was saying, Hey, what toy, or you were asking what toys should I use? Right. For that. Lalo makes this wonderful toy called the Ella. E-L-L-A. And it doesn't vibrate. It is a G-spot dildo. So it doesn't even look phallic, but it has this hook 
a little bit of a hook on it. Now that sounds painful. Hook is not quite right, but it has this bend, I'll say, so that you can insert right along the shelf around the G-spot area and sort of rub back and forth. And it's a dill, so there's no um, clitoral stimulation or anything with that. It doesn't vibrate. I'm just gonna, I'm it. I want to look at it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great, inexpensive uh, way that I sell also. You can use the other end if you want to use the other end. It's just really nice because it's minimal, right? So you're not really relying on vibration or any other kinds of sensation because it doesn't create any of that. We're going to have to buy this one. Yeah, that's, it's a great one. And and I have that on my website also. It's, it's just, it's some people like basic toys, like the enjoy would be another one. Yes. I've been lusting after one for years and I have to buy one. I I really think I would enjoy the weight of it. For those who who don't know what an enjoy is, it's, it's stainless steel, I believe. Right. Correct. Yep. And it's like almost like an S, like a gentle S curve. Yes. So they make two different ones. One is a C curve. And it has knobs on the end. So so just round parts on each end. And one is bigger than the other. And then the other one that they make is an S-curve. And on one end, it has a couple balls, if you will, so that they can be used in the vagina, in the anus. They can really be used wherever. And because of the bend or the curve, you're allowed to hold it with your hand and pull forward away from your body a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that's the sensation, right, of the come hither motion that as women we need on our G-spot, that pull forward or away from our body. And the enjoy is great with that too. Both of those items I really like, as is a lot of glass items. Um, Crave makes this beautiful glass still that has similar kinds of shapes and really our bodies, you know, these toys are made to fit our bodies in certain ways. And we don't have to have the intense vibration or, you know, sync to music or one that heats up. Like we don't necessarily need all of those things. It just really needs to be pressure and fit. Yeah. I had a, uh, I've had a few sex toys. I'm pretty sure wound up in it by accident mm-hmm. at the uh, at the recycle shop. <laughs> I had an ex by me uh, after we broke up. I don't know if he was trying to I don't know, trying to get me back or whatever, but he sent me this beautiful glass dildo. And at the time, I was like, it doesn't vibrate. I'm not fucking interested. Right. I used and- to feel the same way. Absolutely. And I mean, I kept it and because it was so pretty. And I, whenever people came over, I was like, look at my glass dildo. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and I never did use it. And then I moved apartments and I was unpacking. Couldn't for the life of me find it. So I think it wound up at the Goodwill shop. Oh, my Along God. with, um, I had a really great uh, high quality strap on harness uh-huh. and dildo gone. Don't know where they are. Wow. Well, someone oh. got lucky with those. yeah but yeah the glass I'm definitely interested because everything I have right now vibrates and like I said I'm interested in experimenting with this retraining and having something that doesn't vibrate because dicks don't vibrate right well unless you have a ring on them that vibrates yes which actually do and I sell a lot of those because I mean those are really wonderful because you're they're Mm hands-free um does 
create like the, the Layla one or the WeVibe one, both of which I sell, create a vibration through the shaft, actually. So some of the cheaper mm. throwaway ones will just create a vibration on that area. The more expensive ones will actually create a vibration in the shaft. And back to needing um, stimulation or vibration to come, actually, that's just something that is patterned in us. Um, yes. Right? Of like, I only use toys that vibrate. I need the vibration. Well, okay, maybe that's been trained that way. But given time and opportunity, maybe it would be something that would be a little less intense to reach orgasm. And, and I agree with you. I mean, for, I don't know, I think even through my marriage, I was really only masturbating with a vibrating toy, like an old school rabbit that, you know, rumbled and rotated and had lights and all of these crazy things. And it wasn't until I really was trying to seek my own orgasm with a partner that I got away from some of those things, at least from all the time using them so that I would experiment in different ways and therefore retrain my thoughts, not just my body, but my thoughts about the ability to come during penetration. Yeah. And I think that mindset is, yeah, is a huge part of it. And I think, I think we talk about orgasm. Sometimes I think we should separate orgasm and pleasure because you can have pleasure without orgasm and, and that is still worthy. And that is still, there's nothing wrong with not having an orgasm every time. And, and I think we also, the way we talk about orgasm when we're having partnered sex is, you know, he made me come so hard. Right. And I think I fall into that habit too, but I think we really do need to reframe that because fundamentally our orgasm is our own responsibility. Absolutely. Like you can't rely on a partner to give that to you or to make you come. Like you have to. Well, and that's the ego, right? So that's the ego yeah. that says I made her come or I made him come or whatever. Like I did that, you know, I can do that to you. And that's back to the sexual autonomy thing of it's my responsibility. If I choose to share it with you or not, that's also my responsibility. And I'm showing up in my fullness of my pleasure. And even if you're, you know, doing backflips, you know, on my clitoris or whatever, I still may not come because I'm just not in that same mode. I think it's really hard because we look at a penis, right? And, and the male orgasm that is attached to ejaculation. And then we try and transfer that to the female body. And it's not the same. No. It's not the same. And I, I often am educating males or those with a penis around what the fem, female body is responding to and how things are different. Because they, if I'm being heteronormative and generally speaking, they try and translate it like, what do you mean, you know, that, that they aren't one and the same, that orgasm and ejaculation aren't one and the same necessarily. Because there's this just limited patterning view. Well, and men can, men can orgasm without ejaculation. Right. And a lot of males are surprised when I mention that. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of the things that I think men have to train themselves to, to learn how to do. Absolutely. And I think women have to train themselves 
to learn how to ejaculate. Yes. Because I think for a lot of women that, that it, for some, there's a, for, for some, I mean, for me, it was natural when I was quite young, I really wasn't sure what was happening because at that time squirting or ejaculation or however you want to talk about it, wasn't really out in media, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until much later where I realized what was happening and that it actually had a name and that I could control it to a degree. Yes. Right? That's what I have found interesting too on my own journey. It's like, Oh, I can, I can control this to a certain extent, right? but it didn't, it, it didn't come naturally for me in the sense that I knew what it was before I knew whether or not I could do it. Uh-huh. And then I, I was paying attention to this, like what's happening in my genitals when I'm about to orgasm. Like, and I realized that I was, I was effectively shutting down ejaculation because it's such an, an instinctual response. It, it does feel quite similar to I have to pee and we are right for me. It does. And so we're trained from childhood to not let that happen. Yeah. So that was a huge mindset to overcome that. And I knew that I was shutting it down during partnered sex. And I had a partner who was very, he, he was very accepting. Like whatever my body did was fine. Like he would not have lost his mind if I came or any like squirted or anything. Like he was very supportive of however I responded. Mm-hmm. And I told him this and he's like, well, let it go, let it go. And I'm like, I just can't like, it's such a yeah mindfuck, right? right? And then I had, it was a Lilo toy one day just totally, completely and utterly relaxed external through external stimulation. I had my first squirt and it totally took me by surprise. I was like, Whoa, did that just happen? Yep. And I still had, even though it was something that I had been working on and thinking about, I still had a moment of like, Oh, did I just pee? Like what happened? Like even though I logically knew it was crazy. But then after that, once that first time happened, I was like, Oh, I can control this. I can let it happen or I can shut it down if I need to, for whatever reason. Right. But, right. But yeah, it was very, it was very empowering. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, I mean, the comfort level of different partners is going to be different, right. Mm-hmm. Of like, let it rip basically. And like, let's get mm-hmm. messy here. Or I'd rather not. That's a little much, you know, and I just found through the years that the reaction varied between different people. And also I have to say, as my hormones have changed, cause I'm in my forties, it's a little more challenging now than it used to be. And I realized because I would talk to different women who were on the pill, for instance, and who had higher levels of estrogen, sort of how easy it was or challenging it was for them. And so I do see that as our bodies change, it can become more difficult for some. I, uh, it was so funny. I was the same boyfriend. Uh, I was dating, I was on the pill while we were dating. And then at one point I said to him, done with the pill, not putting hormones in my body anymore. You're just going to have to deal with, I mean, we were using condoms anyway, but I'm like, this is the only birth control method now is condoms. Like, sorry, but that's what you get. And he's like, totally fine. It's your body. Like, if you don't want, he's like, I get it. If you don't want to be in hormones, that's right. totally cool. And then a few weeks later, it was, he was like, he couldn't believe how different my body was. Wow. He actually said, he's like, oh my God, I just had you figured out. And now I have to relearn you. And he wasn't saying that in a judgy right. way. More how of a, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think 
when I was on the pill, I, I mean, I always love a good pounding, <laughs> but when I was on the pill, I could take a crazy hard pounding. Once I was off the pill, I couldn't, I couldn't anymore. So I make and, up that because you had more estrogen, that your vagina was more supple and soft and full. When I was on the yes. pill? I wouldn't, that's not how I would frame it. I think that there was a numbing oh, really? in my vagina that was going oh, on. Oh, wow. As a result of huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Which, which allowed me to take, I don't know, maybe you're right, but I hadn't thought of that. That could be part of well, it. Well, and hearing from, so I work, with a, sensitive I work with a hormone doctor and that's what she would probably say. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't thought of that. I'm going to, I'm going to have to think about that tonight. Yeah. I fall asleep. And, you know, again, everyone's body is going to be different and how you respond to hormone is going to be different. Um, I'm on testosterone also. I'm on estrogen, progesterone and testosterone, but I'm on testosterone cream. And that actually really helps with sex drive. Oh, I And bet. keeping my sex drive. I mean, it was always high, but I think just in my, and I had a hysterectomy four years ago. Oh, oh, you did? I did. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, I did a whole episode on it. I um, I was diagnosed finally after years and years and years of pain. I was diagnosed with endometriosis and I had huge cysts. And they were offering surgery to just remove the cysts. And I was like, you know what? Kids are not on the agenda. And if we don't take it all out, like this is going to be a problem for the rest of my life. And the doctor went, yep, we can take it out. I have my ovaries, so I still have like a cycle, uh-huh. but... For me, the hysterectomy was the best decision I've ever made for my health yes. and for my sexuality. Really. Mine as well. I mean, I really, you know, in hindsight, I'm really glad I did it. It wasn't really anything that I had thought was going to happen. Um, I do have two kids, so I wasn't really thinking that I was going to have another one. But while they they took, they did partials, so I still have my ovaries, they also did a bladder lift. And for a lot of women who've had children, issues around the bladder, either protruding into the canal, which sometimes happens, or creating um, incontinence, which is a real embarrassing thing for those of us who feel very young. I mean, for anyone, but right. uh, I was an active runner at the time. And those things really changed my life. The feelings that I had about my sexuality, um, about my performance, right, as an athlete even. And I just think that, you know, it's, again, it's a different choice for everyone, but it's nice to hear that someone else is glad that they made that choice for their health and wellness. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I stupidly, I know better now, but I had um, posted something on Facebook when I was still considering if I, that was the right decision for me and, uh, you know, asked people, I was concerned about uh, sexual functioning mm-hmm. after I was concerned so I as well. And it was shocking to me, like how many women were so quick to jump in and, yes. and shame Dang. that decision. And it just, it makes me angry because you're not my doctor. You don't know me. Right. You don't know my medical history. You don't know my feelings about my body and my sexuality. And to suggest that I'm not a real woman or that I'm giving up my power right. because I don't have a womb anymore. I'm not, you know, deep in my feminine power. It's like, yes. it's just such bullshit. And, and 
it makes me angry because I don't think our power comes from our organs or our bodies or right. anything we look like. Right. It comes from our souls, our who we are as people, our essence. Yes. That's where our faith and is. and you know, despite like physical challenges, whatever they may be, you know, um, because I also work with some people who are in wheelchairs. And so figuring out sexuality around that as well, right? I'm still a sexual being, even though my mobility is limited. So that's not unlike, I'm still a feminine goddess, even though I no longer have a womb. And I do definitely remember going through the projection onto me that I internalized about my worth as a female and how desired I was by men, right? If I was no longer able to have children and just more in a primitive way of what, of how that would translate into a, a mating dance, if you will. Right. Um, and, and the concern around that, and it took me a while to move through it. And then when I was back in my pleasure and, and giving and receiving pleasure, either with myself or with a partner post hysterectomy, it was like the best thing that had ever happened. I just, I felt so connected and there wasn't the fear of course of, of pregnancy anymore or the concern yeah. around that. And also there was a newfound experience and tightness post-surgery that was really wonderful. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's funny too. They, you know, there's, you know, talk about your feminine power, blah, 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 all this stuff. But, you know, for me, insisting that the surgery was something I needed and wanted probably saved my life. My uterus, when they went in, they didn't, no, they couldn't see it on the ultrasound. My uterus was fused to my bowel. Oh, like, wow. That tissue was taking over wow. my internal organs on the inside. And me advocating for myself and knowing what I wanted and needing saved me so many health complications that could have been very serious and very life-threatening. Wow. So, what, so it was such a like, blessing. Yeah. 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 I feel very similar in that. I mean, mine was taken out for cancerous reasons, yeah. but I feel lucky that they just had to remove it and everything's been fine since. And so I, I, in hindsight, see that as a real blessing too. And, you know, women, our bodies, I mean, we go through so many different challenges at different stages in our lives around our reproductive organs. And, uh, I think embracing that we will change and that there will be challenges and, and times in which we can figure out how to maneuver through that in a way to continue to feel joy and pleasure. And we do, luckily we have a lot of options in our healthcare that we can do that. So are you, I'm totally one yep. well, Are you in an open relationship these days? Um, yes. So I'm in a little bit of transition. The last, since you saw me when I was monogamous, uh, in a long-term partnership since then, I have been in varying degrees of openness. So there have been three people in my life since that time consistently to varying degrees of priority 
is how I like to say it. So um, the same three people have sort of moved in and out. I haven't really done a lot of casual experiences around that. For the last year and a half, I have been monogamous with one of those three, physically monogamous. And that primary person, so that would have been my primary, and that primary person moved to another state. So at the moment, I'm in transition of sort of trying to figure out what I want, what I want to experience, who I want to experience that with. And, but I, I have the mentality of being open in general, that just feels better for me. I am a very transparent, honest person around my sexuality and my, also my emotional connections. So, uh, this is a consensual, everyone knows what's happening with everyone else sort of interplay. That's my long and short answer is yes, I'm open and everything feels sort of in transition as opposed to just a few months ago, but I'm, I'm good with it. I'm embracing it and whatever gifts it brings and, and, uh, letting go as well of some hopes that I had had for this past relationship, but realizing that that was really in our growth for both of us. So we'll see. (laughs) I work with a lot of open couples. And in fact, I work with quite a few couples who have been monogamous for a really long time and ask me to help lead them into an open lifestyle. For me, it seems like if you're kind of more an open poly type person that you, you get into those relationships, you come into them saying that, you know, up front, right? I found really interesting couples that have been monogamous for a long period of time and then decide to open. Yeah. So in working with those couples, what has your experience been like? What, what triggers them to decide to do that? And triggers not the right word, but right. for lack of a better one, like has it always been simmering that they've always had those sexualities and now I'm not sure it's just about, more accepted. I'm not or? sure about that. They've always had that as a couple, I think that in monogamy, we, we reach corners in our relationship that we don't reach, you know, in casual or poly situations. And I think a lot of time those corners um, lead couples to say, okay, divorce feels like our next step. I don't know what else to do. And so often around that piece is is when they say, well, what if we open up our relationship to either have boyfriend, girlfriend experiences or to have, um, sex play or, or swinging type experiences, like to add some novelty and newness, but also to try and infuse the relationship with what's lacking that they have not been able to create for each other. And I always tell couples, it will bring up every issue you've ever had. Oh, it is. They think, oh, this is going to be so fun. And let's just dive right in. And I'm always like, okay, let's just take a breath. And I'm just going to prepare you that you will be triggered in ways that are really difficult. And that can strengthen your relationship. And you're going to be forced to communicate in new ways, because all of a sudden, there's other people to consider as well. And that transparency, if you're not transparent, when you're in an open relationship, I think 
it's very difficult right. to make and it work. really that's and and there's varying degrees of honesty okay in terms of what does my partner want to hear so sometimes they want to hear every single detail sometimes they decide i don't want to hear every detail so you're not being dishonest if you're disclosing to me what i'm asking for yes. and and that can be different from partner to partner it's it may not be the same standard and oftentimes they learn that by revealing too much and then saying, wait a second, I actually don't want to know all that. In fact, I heard something recently that was that I thought was really a great program. And it was uh, an agreement between the partners that they would have 24 hours after time or incident or date or something like that with another person to disclose that to their partner. So that there was this trust of you're going to tell me if something happens and you don't know it beforehand, right? So you're going right. to tell me within this window and I can trust that you're going to disclose to me that something happened. And then I can choose how much I want to know about it. Sometimes I find something really hot about hearing your partner's experiences with other people. And I think it goes back to uh, something you mentioned before was that a lot of us get off on our partner receiving pleasure. And when I was in an open relationship, that was one of the things that I found that I really loved that was really interesting to hear him talk about his other partners. And, and it was really, it was really great that we could talk about, you know, how he had sex with me versus the other two women. Like that was probably the most learning I've ever had in a relationship because we could just talk about everything mm -hmm. and to hear him talk about what he enjoyed with different partners. Yes. It wasn't always the same, right? right? It, that was so yeah. interesting. And, and I think if we get our ego out of the way, so if we don't mm -hmm. see our partner having physical touch with another person as a rejection of ourselves, then we can hold that space. Yeah. And I think that once your primary feels full or satiated or attended to, then there's less of a chance of that happening. So like, I'm okay with one of my partners having sex with other people. As long as I know that we're in a good place and that our relationship isn't threatened by a physical encounter with someone. Right. And I think that it's those yeah. kinds of, of open discussions that can really lead to that. A lot of times a fantasy is just a fantasy too. You know, just because you envision your partner having sex with someone may not mean that you actually want to bear witness to that. So I think that that's a really good question. And a lot of times couples don't know that until they experience it and then they try and clean it up. And so yeah. the contract or agreements continue over time to change as their experience changes. Yeah. It's yeah. I think open relationships are, uh, are really interesting for the self work that I think is required to do it successfully and, so that everybody involved is happy and healthy and feeling good and feeling pleasure and feels taken Absolutely. Care. And it's, and it's our, like you said, it's our own work that we have to do around it yes. also. And seeing 
ourselves as worthy and sexual and attractive. And like, we have to tend to all of that because regardless of what our partner may do with someone else, it shouldn't really shake our core foundation of what we believe about ourselves. No, it shouldn't. And if it, if it does, then it seems to me that it's codependency. You need to do some investigation. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to dig deep and find out what is really going on. Right. Deep down. And our ego loves to attack ourselves and keep us in suffering so that those phrases or um, negative self thought patterns that you have in your head around your sex and sexuality, usually a wound happened earlier in life, right? Like in a different relationship or if there was infidelity or betrayal or something like that. And so we have to really choose now whether or not we believe that. And it is a choice to have those negative voices in your head around something that happened a long time ago, but making it about now. Yeah. And I think it's so easy to, for humans to default to the negative, like I'm so, you know, this or that, or I can't this or that. And it takes a lot of paying attention to your thoughts and, and regulating your thoughts and being like, I do it all the time. I'm like, why am I, why do I, why am I being so mean to myself right now? Like I wouldn't, I would never be this mean to another right. person. I would never tolerate another person being this Absolutely. mean to me. And yet in my own head, like sometimes I'm saying really fucking awful things yes. to myself. Like, and, and it's and just, this. and I'm aware of it and I make myself stop now, but it's, it's not an easy thing to it's do. Not. And most and people it, don't even hear what they're saying. They're so used yeah. to, I call it self-annihilation, right? With your thoughts. Yeah. They're so used to that, that that's comfortable. That it almost yeah. creates yeah. some level of comfort because that's what the norm is. And, and they're just running these tapes through their head that they don't even see how they're negatively affecting their experience. Well, and if that's how you treat yourself, then you, I think there's something that happens that makes it easier to allow a partner to treat yes. you that way, which is, it just, and then it becomes like this vicious, you know, cycle of unworthiness yeah. that is not easy to get out well, of. Well, and, and w- because I work with couples mostly, what I see is they are viewing their experiences or we are viewing our experiences through our negative belief system. So I Mm -hmm. say it's like we put on this pair of glasses and then everything we see filters through that prescription of those negative thoughts so that we go, see, I was right. I am love unlovable because you did this. That makes me unlovable. I was right. I knew it all along. And this is where partners fight and they project and they get in their corners. And this is where they get stuck because they can't realize that they are filtering through this lens that is their belief system about who they are that most likely is not true. Yeah. And they get so far off track that it just takes someone else coming in to say, this is, you're seeing this through your wound. You're seeing the situation through your wound and you're creating suffering for yourself 
because your wound is being bumped by this other person. This person isn't causing you suffering. It's that you believe these things about yourself and that's what's causing you suffering. So what would you say to, you know, the person listening who maybe they don't recognize that they're doing this or maybe they do, but they don't know where to start. Like how, what would you say to people who need and want to start breaking that negative self-talk? So what I usually say is um, come up with five negative thoughts that you have about yourself, negative self-beliefs. And these are phrases that no one in the world can identify but you. And it's really important that you get the wording accurate. Okay. So whatever these thoughts are that ruminate either, you know, like through an addiction or when you're emotionally eating, or there are times in our life when we're under a large amount of stress or heartbreak or grief, there are times in our life where these thoughts come up a lot. So most people can identify at least five. So yep, I'm running. I'm running mine right yeah, now. I know, right? Like what were those five? Old ones, you know. When I was deep in my addiction, what were the things that I would say to myself as I was trying to numb? And it's like that's that's the crux. Those things. So then, what we do is we write those down, and then around that, we say, "How much evidence is?" is there that this is actually true so that you start challenging these beliefs because if you don't believe them, they will roll off of you. It's like if someone calls you a racist, I mean, I'm, I know I'm not a racist, so that doesn't even penetrate my being or my energy field at all. That just like is absurd. So you almost have to get to that place where you, you recreate the thought pattern around what is actually happening. So it's not that I'm unlovable. It's that I'm having experiences that are challenging my worth, Mm. right? But but it's Mm -hmm. not an absolute. Yes, I am having these experiences, but I know that I am part of the divine and that I'm lovable just for existing, that I don't even have to do anything that in my nature, because I love myself, I don't need anyone outside of me to value me into existence. So it's, it's really like how I help people is around that is really breaking this down. And then you look at how much suffering this causes you. What happens in your body when you say this to yourself? How do you act in the world when you say this to yourself? right? Because a lot of people will displace their anger for themselves and project it onto someone else. Yes. Right. So that's like displacing trauma almost. So then you really look at, gosh, this is really causing me pain. And what's the truth here? It's the truth is not that I'm unlovable or that, you know, I'm an evil person or that I'm ugly or whatever these things are. I made that up about myself in what experience? Was it in childhood? Was it because my mom didn't believe in me? Was it because my father abandoned me? You know, like you go back to the origin of that place of when you first believed it. So then you can reparent yourself. 
your inner child. Because really, most of the phrases are so infantile that we say, so that we know that those phrases were adopted in early childhood sometime or adolescence. Oh, yeah. One of mine is simply, I'm a bad person. Which, and I say yes, not because I, I believe it, but because it's so no, no. common for people to think it's that so about themselves. And yet when I think about it, I'm like, I know that I'm not a bad person, but sometimes it still just swirls in my head. Yeah. Like, And also that I should have accomplished more. What the fuck have you done right. with your life? Like, that's, that's the one huge that plays. One. That's the one that keeps yeah. us trapped, right? And frozen. Yeah. Of thinking that we should be somewhere that we're not and, you know, as like a failure or something. Yeah. And then I, 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 I go, wait a minute. Like you write right. a book, you've actually gotten right. paid for your writing now. You're doing two podcasts a week. Yeah. You know, and those are the things people are, and I love when people reach out to me on social media and ask me sexuality questions that happens often. And that's so lovely. And that's it's like, amazing. No, I, I've, I've accomplished some things. Am I fully where I want to go yet? No. Am I on the right track? And yeah. see, those are the, the kind Should of it? things that break down that negative belief. So then you reframe it so that you can combat it when it comes in. Even the I'm a bad person. It's like you have to come up with another phrase to replace it. Which is I'm fucking amazing. There you go. That's all you need. <laughs> That's all you need. Or even like something for me personally that I would say is we all have a shadow, honey. You know what I mean? Like not that I'm a bad person, but that we all have light and darkness inside of us. Yeah. And I think if you can reframe this whole, like I'm a bad person, then I think it's easier to go, you know, no, I'm not a bad person. Maybe I did a bad thing or in this, or, or maybe I did something that hurt somebody else. I made a mistake. It's easier to take that in as just simply an element of humanity and that you've made a mistake and that doesn't inform who your character and who you are. But if you haven't done that reframing, then every time you make a mistake, that just solidifies that. I'm absolutely because that's the default. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have an 11 year old son. And in fact, today he was being asked to write an article for it's not an article, a questionnaire, I guess, like paragraphs for an application to middle school. And one of them was, what are you proud of yourself for accomplishing? And he is having the hardest time coming up with it. And this is really important at this prepubescent age, right? We were all there once. Yeah. And so I was saying, well, what do you tell yourself when you're about, he's on the ski team. I said, before you go down, you know, the mountain on these huge runs, how do you psych yourself up? You know, because if you didn't believe you could do it, you would never be at the top of the mountain. So I think that those are really good examples too, of just even identifying how we get through challenging things like, What kind of cheerleader are you for yourself? And where are you off and need to change that so that you do give yourself credit? And of course, I said, you know, more important than anything you could ever do is the person that you are is amazing. And you, you, not just I'm proud of you, but you should be proud of you. And I think also the two, like, you know, you're talking about getting up on that hill and, you know, I was talking about I haven't accomplished enough. One of the things I think is really common 
uh, in these specific situations, and I think to a lot of other people as well, that we don't always credit is that you're still trying. Yes. Maybe you're not an Olympian. Right. Maybe you're not Olympic down here. And maybe I'm not making a living off of my sexuality work yet, but I am still yes. trying. Tenacity that, is a beautiful attribute. And that's yes. worthy. And it's what makes yeah. you special. It's it's doing what you love, right? And what you're passionate about, even if it isn't getting accolades from the exterior on every turn. There's also a, like, it just feels good. Like every time I record a podcast, like it feels good. Like I'm putting information up there and I'm having conversations that are really, I think important to be out in the world. And every time I finish writing a little piece of erotica, I'm like, I have done something. I've created something. I've, I've given a piece of me to the world. And that feels very important to me. Absolutely. And it's so then even as children, we learn, right, to look for validation in other. Because mm-hmm. even in his mind, that's what he was saying. Well, what makes that special or unique? Because he's comparing to other. And we right. all do that, right? Well, it is unique because right. it's your story. You are just comparing to yourself in the past and what you've done in the past. And as long as you're growing and pushing yourself and taking risks, you know, and being true to who you are, that's all the accolades that you need. It is not looking around to what your peers are doing or people your age, right? That's something that that we're not taught really. No, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. And bring this back to sexuality, I think that informs that as well. Like we are not taught to, you know, what's happening inside of myself is enough and worthy, be it, be it pleasure or a goal you're working for or connecting with another person sexually or emotionally. Like you don't need to compare. Like if it just feels good to you and your soul and your body, like that, that's enough. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. That's enough. And realizing that our the way that we experience pleasure is going to be different than the way that mm-hmm. everyone else experiences it, right? And so that we don't judge ourselves around our multi-orgasmic friends, you know, who who can come within two minutes of penetration. I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> and I have a friend like that. What I mean, what I mean is teach me. Exactly. Exactly. But the deal is really that her body is different, you know, than my body or your body and, and to really see it as we're not in competition. And I think often, especially in relation to other or new partner is, Mm -hmm. well, how do I measure up? Like, are my skills good? You know, a lot of people ask me about technique, right? I want to have the best technique, which is awesome. It's not just about that. It's about presence and attention. I think the the bigger skill than technique is, can you read your partner? Can you communicate what you want them to do? And can you hear what they're telling you? Or can you ask? what they right. want to do. That's more important than to me. Really technique. getting to know the person. You can have yeah. amazing technique, but if they don't like that specific thing, then it's moot. Right. 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 Like, 
And I often hear partners say, well, this is my signature move or whatever, and this has worked before, and I've never had trouble like I do with this person. Uh. I know. And it's really, you know, that's also an unwillingness in themselves to grow out of their comfort zone. Because it is challenging, you know, in our intimate relationships, it it can be really challenging and vulnerable to continue to work through obstacles in our sexual connection. Yeah. I think when we have new sexual partners, I think it's not a skill I have mastered yet, but I think if you can leave, not leave your past at the door in the sense of you forget everything you've learned. I mean, take what's positive, but I mean, leave it at the door in terms of this is a new person. So I'm here going to be sexual with this person, you know, emotional connection as well. So I'm leaving my past at the door in the sense that I want to find out how this person likes things. What makes them feel good? How do they connect with me? How do we connect together? Because that's what's important. That's new. That's what you need to figure out. It doesn't matter what your previous boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever liked or did. It doesn't matter that you have a party trick that got X amount of people off in your path. That doesn't totally. matter. The only thing that matters is the person in front of you and how you're going well, to interact with them in a I way think that, that when we feel put our ego good. aside and, and let's yeah. be for real, a lot of times in new experiences, ego is what gets you naked even. You don't really know maybe the other person is intimately, right? Because you haven't been physically intimate yet. And so part of getting there is like a trust in yourself and how you feel about yourself just to get to that place. But then it's about really letting go in your mind and letting your bodies lead. And a lot of people don't trust their bodies enough to be able to do that with someone that they aren't in a committed partnership with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a self-protection sometimes that, that hampers that, you know, the, the leading with your body because it's, that's not always easy to do. And there's, I think a certain amount of vulnerability that comes into play that sometimes well and we're taught as children let's be honest we're taught as children to not trust ourselves and our bodies i mean i i am very keenly aware now when i see parents say to their toddler go hug you know this stranger no it's okay give him a hug tell him you know and and i sit there and think wow that that child is learning in this moment not to trust their body and I know, or they're learning that what, what another person wants is more yes. important than their own yes. comfort. And yep. we all learned that way, right? Because that sort of parenting consciousness wasn't in play then. And I remember having mm-hmm. discussions with my parents and saying, please let them come to you. Do not pressure them into hugging you or kissing you or, you know, even you holding them. And I feel like that's something that we learned so early on. And unfortunately, um, you know, I have had times in my sexual history where I put myself in situations that I wasn't totally comfortable with or that I wasn't in full sober conscious mind about that. I couldn't really check in and say, am I okay with what's happening now? Because I have the choice to say no. And I feel like, I hope 
that we are teaching our children more now to trust themselves and that they don't have to be focused on the other person and their pleasure or enjoyment in their bodies. But we can really hold our comfort level first before we see what we can extend to another person. Yes. And that is something we're taught. Or maybe it's something, you know, because it's like, as, as babies, we're very comfortable in our bodies. I mean, we think so, at least, that we have these experiences of, of inhibition, of this feels good. I'm going to touch my penis. It feels good, you know, as children yeah. do. And then all that filtering negative message comes in around mm-hmm. puberty and masturbation and um, sexual exploration and all of those things that, that then contaminate the way that we feel about our bodies and our sexuality. Yeah. I think a lot of us have some of us not often unlearning that needs to be done before we can really grow our pleasure potential and our uh, intimate. I don't mean sexuality necessarily, but intimacy with another person. Like there's a lot that we need to untrain and undo before we can really Truly yes. open and let another person. Yes. We were also going to talk about penis size. We were, huh? <laughs> well, let's see. There's going to be something coming out in the Toronto Sun tomorrow. Um, yes. Oh, really? Now, I have no idea which part is going to that I said is going to be used. I know that I asked you about this earlier in the week just because I had to write some quotes. Not really the whole piece, but I had to write some quotes and answer some questions around it. And basically, the idea was... If there is a concern around the, your size as a penis owner, <laughs> I'll say, how do you disclose that? At what point do you talk about it? Um, one of the reasons that I don't carry anything phallic in my store is because I want everyone to feel normal and perfect, oh. you know, regardless of their shape, color, size, any of that. And how is that communicated? Is it communicated in the moment? Yeah. What was the consensus? What did people, what did people think about that? When you so I asked story? quite a few people, including a trans woman of the experience of how this has come about in your sexual inventory, if you will. And most people said that it was a disclaimer in the heat of the moment. Or it was not talked about, but there were other things that were the focus and not penetration. I have had a partner say it to me upon, like, as we were disrobing for the first time. And he was inaccurate to think that he was small in size. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I said to you as well is like, I think men generally, not generally, sometimes think they are smaller than they really are. And for me personally, it's like, I don't need that disclosure ever. I don't think like if we're at the point of disrobing, the only thing that would stop me from having sex with you is if, you know, I saw your penis and I thought that there was something that could hurt me. Like if you like extremely large and I was going to say like you might have an infection or something. That's the only thing. And I was going to say with a really large penis, do you say, by the way, I have a really large penis and I'm letting actually, actually, you know what? I think, yeah, I think I would much more need a disclosure about somebody who's too big than too small. If you're too, 
too small. That's not the right words. Smaller. I don't think anybody's ever too small. Do you know what I mean? Like you still have a penis, you still have fingers, you have a tongue, like we can make it work. But the very large penis, I should just, I should just, oh my God. On a previous podcast, I've talked about this penis a few times. He's larger, and this wasn't a partner of mine, but he's larger than three toilet paper Wow. That, that is something that I would want disclosed because that takes a little bit of mental getting around because you can't just start fucking with a penis like that. Like, and I would assume that man knows that and knows how to, you know, not hurt his partner, which is, it's terrible that that's how you, that would be my first thought about sex with somebody with a large penis. But, but it, that's why I would want that right. disclosed. And so when that I, can, I dated someone you know, in high school for a while and I could not have sex with this person because I was too afraid because he was so large. And I have to say, I don't really think that I've ever said that to someone who is below average in size. And, and I yeah. think that men don't hear that enough. And they're conditioned with porn, usually, which is not normal either. And however they have internalized their worth around their size, which again is all ego, right? Mm-hmm. Then it creates this insecurity. And really, if we look at it, I mean, every woman is going to be different in the depth of her canal and what she is comfortable receiving. And we all have different size clitoris that would be our penis had we developed in that way. And so it's just that it's not out in the open for everyone to see and judge, right? It's so internal in a woman's body. And our G spot is really only between two and three centimeters inside. So sometimes Mm -hmm. the smaller can actually hit in a way a pleasure sensor that a larger bypasses. I mean, and the other thing I would say too, building on what you just said, for men who worry that they might be too small, I don't know how many women there are out there that would say a finger one finger inserted and, you know, worked properly. I think a lot of women would say that feels really good. So size fundamentally doesn't matter on the smaller side. I don't think. Right. I would say so too. And that that's a, that can be a really bonding conversation and hopefully it's received well. And there are all kinds of things in the sex toy world that can be used around extending the size of your penis if that's what you choose to do. So it's not a real limiting belief system as I think it maybe used to be. And I hope that males of all sizes really look at the range and possibility of experience. Yes. And I think, again, this is something that there's a lot of unlearning to be done because we are like, often as a society, you like really focused on size, but my conversation, like it's, just not important right. is what I've come away with from conversations that I've had with women. It's what can you do with yes. it? What can you do with your fingers? What can you do with your tongue? Do, like, do you care about my pleasure? Like all of those things are more important than how long you are, how girthy. you are. Yes, absolutely. And it's, I've, I don't know if you've had the same experience I've come across and I don't know 
that they were necessarily bigger guys, but there was one or two where some, I don't know, it was bizarre. It's just like, you are the perfect fit. Yes. And it ha- didn't have anything to do with size. It just was the perfect. You hit the right spots. Like yep. it just, it felt like that you were made for each other. And yes. again, that- like, as soon as you're inside, I'm losing my mind. Cause it's just the right, the right, pe- the right, puzzle right. Piece, really. And it well, doesn't have to be always bigger or always with a curve or always right. It doesn't have to be like that. It's just that yeah. when it happens, you know that it just feels like a good fit. And it's also probably in addition to that, there's got to be bonding and pheromones and communication and other things that make you really feel that way. Yeah. I'm getting a little. <laughs> Thinking about your perfect yeah. fit. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I um, I was talking, I've had, uh, you know, yes. Renee. And you, anyway, I was talking with, and I've had Victoria on. Oh, good. Yeah. And I'm happy. I think I was talking about the fuckarama with Renee. And it's funny because I, I'm pretty sure I was sitting next to you during the fuckarama and was like, I don't know where to look yes, or yes. what's happening. And then I think we, that was like one of the first days of school. And I think we all went out for drinks uh-huh. after and you were like oh yeah I totally the first time I watched the fucking rama I can't remember if you said something like you clearly you made it clear that like you were aroused I when you I watched it something and it was like okay. it made me wet yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean it's interesting oh. so so for listeners who don't know what that is it's it's interesting to watch porn in a room full of other people when you're in a chair and cloth like in a classroom and and it is and the the reasoning behind that really is to be exposed to all different kinds of things bombarded honestly because there's multiple scenes going on in one clip which is hard to envision but it was created for this experience and also to see to trust in your body what excited you and what didn't when you were out of your mind of what you thought was going to excite you yeah, and that was really interesting because there were so many different clips going on that I would, you know, look away from something that didn't do it for me, which is often the clips that stay right. with me. Yes, that you remember. Which there's something to that, to like that which repulses you might also arouse yes. you. But, you know, so I would put my eye on something that I, I was enjoying that I found, you know, quite hot. And then all of a sudden that screen would change and I'd be like, oh shit, like, no, that's not my thing. And I'd look to something else, but it was already in your brain. And it was this crazy, like, you did have to like, think about what actually turned you on and, and why do some of the images that I find a little bit distressing, like I can still visualize right. those. Same. So what is Well, and that? also that's imprinting, you know, and I feel like a lot of times when we work with fetishes or people who have concern, I guess I should say for their fetishes and wondering why certain things arouse them. Usually it's because they were aroused in a situation that maybe was even a non-sexual situation or around an object that maybe isn't normally sexualized. And then they imprinted that that was their arousal. 
And so it's interesting, right? When we get aroused by accident or with something that is surprising to us that normally our minds wouldn't be aroused to. And that's a lot of times how the fetishes come into play. You know, when I have to think back to my kinks, it's, it's kind of funny. Like you don't know it at the time, but I, I enjoy bondage. I enjoy being tied up. And I remember as a child playing, getting tied up. I think my brother used to occasionally like, you know, pretend I was a prisoner or whatever, like cops and robbers kind of thing and tie my hands and whatever. And I also remember another experience with um, just a male friend. We were in, we were in elementary school. So this was not sexual, but at the same time, looking back, I'm like, was it not sexual? Like there was something there. I remember very vividly being on my back and we were playing. The game was tie up and I was laying in the basement, whatever we were fooling around. We had this rope and skipping rope or whatever. And he like tied me up with it. Like, and I very vividly remember that situation. And it's like, Oh, is is that imprinting? I don't know. I wouldn't have called it sexual at the time, but. And possibly, I mean, it's interesting around uh, power play and I work with a lot of power play couples in varying degrees, right. Um, of what have, how they want to engage with someone in a subdom kind of situation. And there's a whole lot of like, even daddy, you know, like even these phrases that we use that may or may not be reminiscent of childhood, but more of power, right? So that even being tied up is powerless or a surrender of power. Um, even mm-hmm. as a child, it is a loss of power. Maybe there was some eroticism to that at that time. Who knows? But as an adult, there sure is, right? Around that, yeah. if that's something you mm-hmm. want to engage in and experiment with. Or maybe sometimes I think too, like my personal experience, I look back on that and I'm like, I think like I enjoyed that as a child. Yeah. Like, so was it imprinting or was it something that was always there? Like I wouldn't have played that game because we played that game quite often. Like, so even as a child, there was something about that that I like. Like, I don't think that experience created right. a kink. I think the kink was always there and it just happened as with this friend in elementary school, we happened to play with it, which I find it really interesting to think about where do people's kinks come from? Like, how does that work? And we, we don't, we know. don't know. And, and maybe it's not across the board, you know, maybe for some, it is an experience where they were highly aroused. And so then they chased that experience again. It, it is hard to know, or is that something that just even the power dynamic in yourself, right. Of, of, of feeling restrained. I mean, if we look at like how our parents typically, uh, at least, you know, in our age range punished us, it was usually because we were out of control. And so when you're out of control as a child, it can be very scary because you feel like you don't have control over your emotions and therefore the constriction of parent, even time out is for you to calm down enough to where you can regain control of yourself. So whether it's timeouts or sometimes, right, physical punishment, 
was sometimes used right around that. And not saying that everyone eroticizes that, but there is this, if I, if I constrict you, you'll regain control. And that's something that I definitely identify with as an alpha sub. I identify with as a what What did you say? As alpha sub. sub. That's how I identify in power play is an alpha sub. And I am. Can you define that for, because I'm not, for listeners, because I'm not, I think I know what you mean, but I'm not quite sure. Well, I'll explain it in terms of how I define that. Um, It is a term that is used often in power play terminology. So for me, like, I'm not a true submissive. It is hard for me to submit, even though I desire that. So in my day-to-day activities, I'm a very dominant female. I own my own business. I'm a single mother. I'm just, I'm very, I have a very go-getter personality. Um, Most people would see me as a very dominant person. So I enjoy being able to be in my submission, but it's a struggle for me because I'm so alpha. So for me, it takes a very dominant, for my personal preference, male, for me to feel safe enough to surrender. And my psyche wants that balance. My psyche wants to surrender. But the alpha in me creates some struggle. If that all makes sense. That actually really resonates. Um, Because I, similar to you in the sense that like, you know, running my own business and I work a day job and this, that, and the other. And like, I'm in control of my life. And I also want to submit for me. The struggle is he has to be, he has to be smarter and more accomplished than me. Like, yes. Cause if that's not there, then it just like, I, I can't, I can't make it's it work. Not believable. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. And so I'm drawn to, you know, powerful, accomplished men because it seems that they would be able to give that to me. Like, and it wouldn't feel fake. Like I had somebody who, you know, minimum weight, and this sounds shitty and I don't mean it to sound shitty, but I was dating somebody who was super fun. We had great sex. And then, but it was, there was no power play until one day he tried to power play. And I'm like, no, I just like, can't you get make that. minimum wage. You're not accomplishing your career. Like I just can't. Like right. I can't flip it if it's not real in right. real life. Like and I can't. The, get into and that what you project to be dominant would maybe be a little different than what someone else would project to be dominant. Like sometimes it's just oh, for personality. Sure. For me, it's also that they're a king in their own world, right? Like whatever it yes. is that I make yes. up that that is for me because of my definition of what it would be for me, right? Is that they have to be like really on point in certain ways for me to bow down. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, and I've had great relationships and great sex with people who felt a little more my equal or could be more switch. Cause I can be a switch too, you know, depending on who the person is, that's not really my preference my preference is to have someone who definitely is the dominant so that I can be in my feminine, if you will, in my soft submissive part that I don't get to play all day, every day. Now I have integrated more of that piece 
consciously into the way in which I move throughout the world. Cause I saw that I really was unbalanced and too hard edge for a long mm. time, mostly because I was surviving as a single working mother and I just had to do everything. And so I became very male like in my energy. So for me, power play helped me integrate that piece back in so that I really felt like I could let go. And it's also something that you can do in your everyday life, right? When you become aware of sort of how out of balance you are, of what you need to do to to bring that back into more fluidity. Oh, I have so many things I I want to talk about, Anne. (laughs) But we're, we're, we're at an hour and a half. So I feel like perhaps we should um, cut it off here. If that's okay with you. Although there, I feel like there's many more. Well, and we could do another one. I mean, you, you could be a guest on, on my show. You know, I do a radio show on Thursday nights, but I'm also going to be doing more podcasting in terms of one-on-one conversation. That's a little uh, of a diversion from the show. So that would be lovely. I'd I'd love to hear more about your erotica too. (laughs) Oh shit. (laughs) Um, For the listeners who might want to, uh, search your radio show, where would they find it? So if you go to my website, really all the links are there. It is modernaphrodite.com. And you can either from that page, go and see about working with me and more about who I am as a therapist in person. You can also shop there and then find the links to the downloadable, um, MP3s of, of past shows. Sounds good. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes that, so that people can find you. And then do you do for couples who, and people who might've been listening, who thought, Oh, I want to work with her in a therapeutic setting. Do you do that long distance via Skype? Absolutely. I'll do Skype or FaceTime sort of however, whatever platform people are comfortable with. I also, in like a Google chat have done, have worked with couples where all three of us are in a different location. Um, so I can really do whatever works for the client and whatever they prefer. Some people just prefer phone, um, and not be even being, you know, in a video kind of chat situation because of what they're talking about. It feels too vulnerable and, and that's fine too. It's really just what feels most effective for them. So my email address and everything is on the website. And um, if someone's interested, they can just send me a quick email, give me a little bit of history, and then we can go from there. Perfect. So if you are interested in looking up Dr. Anne Ridley, you can find her at modernaphrodite.com, where you can find all the good things that she just mentioned. I will put a link in the show notes that you can find her. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming on. It's so good to catch up with you. You too. It just reminds me. It just reminds me that we shouldn't let go this long. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I've definitely missed connecting with you. Me too. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you next time. This has been the Drunk Sex Podcast with Jen Wadkey. For more sex talk, head over to the Jen Wadkey Facebook group or check out jenwadkey.com. Till next time, happy boozing and sexing.